This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. And now coming for the final session of the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicities uh, seminar on immigration rights and wrongs. Uh, I should take this final occasion to thank our various sponsors who have helped make this series of activities and stimulating events possible. That includes uh, the President's Office, the Provost's Office, uh, the VPUE's Office, uh, Continuing Studies, as well as uh, Irish Institute for Research in the Social Sciences, who all helped um, to make this possible. Um, as part of our final session here, as you saw coming in, uh, we are also having a, a book signing, so that there are books by several of our panelists here this evening. If you haven't already, uh, tried to grab one for yourself, and uh, if you weren't among the first 10 folks in the door, that means you got to pay for it. Uh, they're still in the back here and will be there at the end of this evening's session. Uh, there'll also be some light refreshments at the conclusion of the sessions, if you want to stay and mill around a bit and uh, chat with us. Um, <clears throat> we live in interesting times. And universities, particularly great universities, have an obligation to be sites of serious thinking and inquiry and probing on the major topics of the day. We have been delighted to bring you this series on the subject of immigration uh, and to be an occasion for students at this university, faculty and staff at this university, members of the larger Stanford community to become engaged with these deeply important questions of the day to think seriously about how matters of racial and ethnic distinction, difference, and sometimes division and conflict still play an important role in our lives, and to help make sure this is a site of serious intellectual engagement with the major is issues of the day. As you will all recall, we began this uh, intellectual adventure with a probing documentary, Crossing Arizona, that gave us the faces, the stories, the perspectives of those struggling to find work, of the militiamen along the border trying to seal up movement across the border, of the humanitarians who are getting engaged in various ways, uh, and those who are officially charged with the duty of um, enforcing uh, a national borderline. We moved into a very serious foundational session, painting a portrait of the evolving history of Americans' treatment of the issue of immigration in this country and the number of great waves of transformation that have characterized our past. We talked also in a pointed manner about whether there are economic consequences of immigration today, both for certain sectors of the labor market, the economy as a whole, and the movement of immigrants into our own economic um, structure, as well as taking a bit of time to focus on what created the sense of political urgency around immigration in recent times. Uh, we moved from there to more of a cultural lens on these questions thinking about how, for example, say documentaries made in Mexico engage the issue of the border, both uh, in an earlier era and more uh, contemporaneously. Thinking about how things are framed uh, in the media, in our own discourse, and even in the jokings, musings of a comedian like Jay Leno. And most recently, we did the most probing kind of moral, ethical, religious, humanistic engagement with these questions from um, Father Daniel Grudy. Having laid that foundation, put a bunch of different uh, perspectives and information on the table, we're now going to try to wrap it up. Not so much with a neat bow, but uh, with some of the most provocative, important, distinguished thinkers on this subject that we have today in the academy, both 
bringing to the fore two uh, up-and-coming stars, and indeed two of the most eminent scholars in all of the social sciences, particularly where the subject of um, immigration uh, is concerned. So it should be a rich and full session. As I say, there will be refreshments afterwards. We're going to try to keep everybody on time so that you do indeed get the proper opportunity to ask questions. Toward that end, we're going to keep introductions a bit to a minimum this evening compared to our past sessions. Uh, that we'll have full bios online available to all of you. And I am now going to turn it over to a friend and colleague of CCSRE who's going to introduce our speakers and moderate tonight's session. That's uh, Professor Michelle Landis-Dauber, who is both a sociologist uh, and a member of our law school faculty. She is associate professor of law and the Bernard D. Burgreen faculty scholar here at Stanford University. Please welcome Michelle Landis-Dauber. I'm the person uh, here who has the least to say on this subject, so I can keep things uh, moving. Um, uh, I believe the order of presentation that uh, we got was Professor Lee, uh, Professor Shrinkatia, uh, Professor Portes, and Professor Zolberg. Is that correct? Okay. So let's uh, start right away with Professor Jennifer Lee. Jennifer Lee is an associate professor at the Department of Sociology at UC Irvine. And um, she has written numerous articles and books uh, on the subject of uh, immigration. Uh, she is the author of a book entitled Civility in the City, Blacks, Jews, and Koreans in Urban America and uh, is not a stranger to Stanford. She was a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences here. Um, and uh, I think one of the most doing some very exciting work on uh, immigration and uh, mobility. So it'll be very exciting to hear what she has to say. Hi, thank you very much for coming today um, and bearing this awful weather to come to this panel. I also like to thank um, Professor Bobo and Professor Liu for the invitation. I'm really, really honored and delighted to be here, especially on this panel of such distinguished scholars. Um, and I'll try to hold my own here. <clears throat> It was no small coincidence that Congress voted to approve a bill that supported the construction of a 700-mile fence along the U.S.-Mexico border less than a month before the U.S. population hit the 300 million mark. America's demographic landscape has changed dramatically since 1967 when our population was only at 200 million, and much of that change is due to immigration. Today, immigrants and their children account for about 66 million people, or about 23% of the U.S. population, and about two-fifths, it also accounts for about two-fifths of the country's annual population growth. Ooh. To, um, today, more than 14% of the U.S. population is Hispanic, up from less than 5% in 1970, more than 4% is now Asian, up from less than 1% in 1970, and about 12% is black, up, from slightly, up slightly from about 11%. By contrast, if you look at the non-Hispanic white population, you see that it's dropped from about 84% in 1970 to 67% today. 
Clearly, immigrants are changing the racial and ethnic diversity and the face of America in unforeseen ways. President Bush proclaimed that reaching the 300 million milestone provides, quote, further proof that the American dream remains as bright and as hopeful as ever. Yet Americans seem much too preoccupied with the ongoing debate about immigration to really notice or celebrate. Now at the core of the debate about immigration is how immigrants and their children are assimilating in the United States host, host society. Some worry about the unassimilability of today's newcomers, one-fifth of whom are of Mexican origin. They point to their non-European cultural origins, their low educational and job skills, and their unwillingness to adopt the American way of life. These scholars warn that if we turn a blind eye to this immigration problem, so to speak, today's newcomers could easily become a burden on our nation's, on our nation's economy and may even form a new urban underclass. The most ardent proponent of this perspective is Samuel P. Huntington, who in an essay entitled The Hispanic Challenge claimed that the persistent inflow of Hispanic immigrants threatens to divide the United States into two peoples, two cultures, and two languages. Unlike past immigrant groups, Mexicans and other Latinos have not assimilated into mainstream U.S. culture, forming instead their own political and linguistic enclaves from Los Angeles to Miami and rejecting the Anglo-Protestant Anglo values that built the American dream. Huntington claims that Mexicans' refusal to assimilate on all the core dimensions, residential, linguistic, socioeconomic, and political, reflects their rejection of American culture. And he cautions that the United States ignores this challenge at its peril. However, other scholars have taken a different view entirely, claiming that Huntington's claims are really just nothing more than overblown hysteria, pessimism, and alarm, just very alarming. This camp points to the fact that the majority of America's newcomers and their children are not only successfully incorporating into their host society, but also achieving rates of social and economic mobility that are comparable to, if not better than, their, the earlier waves of European immigrants. So today what I wanted to do in this talk is focus on a few dimensions of incorporation. I'll look at linguistic incorporation, political incorporation, and sociocultural incorporation in the form of intermarriage to answer the question of whether today's immigrants are incorporating or are they actually unassimilable, as Huntington proposes. Um, and I'll focus in particular on Mexican immigrants, not only because they are the largest group, but also because a lot of the public policy debate revolves around the question of Mexican immigrant incorporation. One barometer of immigrant incorporation is the, is the degree to which they are linguistically assimilating. That is, the extent to which immigrants are adopting the English language. Because the English language is a unifying mechanism in this country, Americans have come to strongly believe and expect that immigrants should learn English, a sentiment reflected in a statement made by the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform in 1994. Immigration to the United States should be understood as a privilege, not a right. 
Immigration carries with it obligations to embrace the common core of the American civic culture, to become able to communicate to the extent possible in English with other citizens and residents, and to adopt to fundamental constitutional principles and democratic institutions. Now, like most Americans, Mexican Americans also support this view with more than 90% um, agreeing with the perspective that US citizens and residents should learn English. Now, the general pattern of linguistic assimilation among immigrants is that the first generation prefers their native language. The second generation um, shows much more flexibility. They're normally bilingual, yet may prefer speaking English outside the home. But by the third generation, it's very rare that you see Americans who are bilingual, and much more common is English monolingualism. Um, how are Mexicans doing? Are today's Mexicans doing in this regard? Huntington believes that Mexicans will not follow this pattern. He fears that the continued influx of immigrants and the rapid expansion of Mexican communities give Mexican Americans little incentive to become fluent in English. However, analysis of the 2000 census proves otherwise. The census data show that among second generation Hispanics, 92% speak English well or very well. And among second generation Asians, the figure reaches 96%. Among the third generation, the, the predominant pattern is English monolingualism. A full 92% of third and higher generation Asian children speak only English. And the corresponding figure for Hispanics is 72%. And the higher levels of the, um, the lower level of English-only speakers among Hispanics is a reflection of those who largely live on the border of the United States and Mexico. Among the third and later generation Mexicans who do not live close to the Mexican border, English monolingualism is the norm. Clearly, Huntington's fears of a nation divided by two languages is unfounded. Mexican immigrants and their children are following the time-honored path of linguistic assimilation like their European immigrant predecessors. Through the generations, they are becoming more like native-born Americans. That is, they're becoming, for better or for worse, English monolingual. Now, the second issue that I'd like to discuss is that of illegal immigration and processes of political incorporation. Um, perhaps no other topic is in immigration is as contentious as this one. In the year 2000, social scientists estimated that the total number of undocumented immigrants at about 7.8 million, with 4.5 million coming from Mexico. Among recent Mexican arrivals who came to the United States between 1995 and 2000, more than 80% are estimated to be here illegally. These numbers, coupled with these sensational media images of Mexican immigrants, have seared into the American consciousness that most, American, most Mexicans have entered the country illegally by stereotypically crossing the border. Yet really little is known about what happens to this population once they settle in the United States. For instance, how many of them change their legal status um, to become US citizens or permanent residents? Because naturalization is the most significant indicator 
of political incorporation, the question of whether Mexican immigrants naturalize, especially if they come here illegally, is a very important one. Huntington argues that not only do undocumented migrants from Mexico evince very low rates of naturalization, he also claims that when Mexicans do become U.S. citizens, they do, they do so mainly to take advantage of government programs like welfare benefits or affirmative action. However, recent research provides evidence to the contrary. Not only do the majority of previously undocumented um, Mexican immigrants naturalize when given the opportunity to do so, but their change in naturalization status translates into significant human capital gains for their children. Based on a study that my colleagues and I conducted in Los Angeles of 4,800 adult children of immigrants in Los Angeles, we found that of those who are of Mexican origin, so they're 1.5 or second generation, um, almost half had fathers who migrated as undocumented migrants. However, by the time we administered the survey in 2004, only about one-tenth of the respondents' fathers were still undocumented, meaning that about 90% had changed their status and become either U.S. citizens or legal permanent residents. Many of the Mexican fathers benefited from the 1986 Immigration and Reform Control Act, known as IRCA, which provided pathways to legalization for undocumented immigrants. Clearly, when given the opportunity to change their status, the overwhelming majority of undocumented immigrants choose to do so. Um, also important is how does the question we wanted to answer is how does a change in father's legalization trust status affect their children? And what we found is that it, it affects the educational and earnings outcomes of the second generation. For instance, the 1.5 and second generation Mexicans whose father came to the United States as undocumented migrants and later legalized were 25% less likely to drop out of high school and 70% more likely to graduate from college than those whose fathers remained undocumented. Moreover, their annual earnings were about 30% higher than those whose fathers did not legalize their status. Hence, a change in one's father's status from undocumented to legalized translates into a reduced likelihood of educational failure, an increased likelihood of college completion, and an increased likelihood of higher incomes. In short, providing a pathway to legalization and citizenship for undocumented immigrants translates into increased human capital gains for the children of immigrants. Finally, I'd like to discuss one final barometer of immigration, that is intermarriage. Um, in 1964, Milton Gordon, Gordon conceived of intermarriage as one of the final stages of a minority group's assimilation into the majority group host culture. He argued that intermarriage really reflected a decreasing social distance between groups, declining racial and ethnic prejudice, and changing group boundaries. So to what extent are today's immigrants intermarrying and, to what, and what do these patterns suggest about their assimilation processes? Just to give you some background, as late as 1967, there were still 16 states that banned 
interracial marriage. And it wasn't until the Supreme Court ruling Loving versus the Commonwealth of Virginia where the final anti-miscegenation laws overturned in the United States. The ruling, along with the civil rights movement, had a dramatic impact on the rise of intermarriage, which increased more than 20-fold in a 40-year period from 150,000 in 1960 to 3.1 million in 2000. Today, about 13% of American marriages involve partners of different races, a significant increase that can't be attributed to population growth alone. Now, while the overall rise in intermarriage is certainly notable, there are group differences. And as you'll see, in 2000, only about 7% of white and about 12.6% of black marriages were exog exogamous, compared to 30.9% of Asian and 29.3% of Latino marriages. Hence, while one, more than one out of every four married Asians and Latinos has a partner of a different racial background, the comparable figure for blacks is one in eight. Now, if we look just among the native-born Asians and Latinos, the rate of intermarriage is even higher. In 2000, close to 56% of marriages containing a native-born Asian and 42% of marriages containing a native-born Latino were exogamous, and most of these Asians and Latinos are marrying whites. Among young native-born Asians and Latinos, that is, those who were born in the United States and who are the ages between 25 and 34, the intermarriage figures are even higher. Nearly two-thirds of married Asians and two-fifths of Latinos outmarry, again, mostly with whites. Hence, not only are Asians and Latinos intermarrying non-Hispanic whites in high numbers, but their rate of intermarriage continues to increase across generations. The comparatively higher rates of intermarriage among native-born Asians and Latinos indicates that as these groups acculturate, not only do they become more receptive to intermarriage, but native-born whites seem to find them as suitable marriage partners. Current research also shows the patterns of intermarriage among second-generation Mexicans are similar to those of second-generation Italians in the early mid to 20th century. Hence, the research on Asian and Hispanic intermarriage points to assimilation rather than cultural bifurcation. Now, having just presented evidence from empirical research, we see that today's immigrants, including today's Mexican immigrants, are following the classic model of straight-line assimilation paved by the European predecessors. The majority are assimilating on many of the core dimensions, linguistically, politically, and through intermarriage. First, not only are they becoming English fluent, they're also becoming English monolingual, again, for better or for worse. Um, second, most immigrants naturalize and become U.S. citizens when given the opportunity to do so, even when they enter the country illegally. More importantly, the change in naturalization status leads to increased human capital gains for the next generation. And third, immigrants and their children are intermarrying at rates that are comparable to the earlier waves of European immigrants. In short, with each succeeding generation, immigrants are becoming more and more like native-born Americans. So to conclude, I'd like to return to the image of the 700-mile fence along the U.S.-Mexico border that Congress voted to support. 
The idea behind the fence is, is that it'll keep out this undesirable lot of Mexican immigrants from illegally entering the country. However, constructing barriers for immigrants is not where we, where we should devote our attention or our resources. Instead, we should think of pathways for legalization for the undocumented immigrants who are already here. Not only would this help the first generation, but it would also help the second and later generation. Immigrant children who have fathers who legalize their status, again, are less likely to drop out of high school, more likely to finish college, and more likely to earn higher wages. And in the process, they'll become greater stakeholders who can meaning meaningfully contribute back to the United States, which, after all, in the words of President Bush, would provide quote, further proof that the American dream remains as bright and as hopeful as ever. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to introduce our next uh, speaker, who, Jay Shri Shrinkatia, who is my colleague at Stanford Law School. Uh, Jay Shri is the director of the uh, Immigration Project at Stanford Legal Clinic, and she was previously the um, uh, uh, associate legal director at the ACLU of Northern California and worked at the Immigrants' Rights Project there. Um, she has done really uh, brilliant uh, work uh, in trying to uh, prevent human trafficking and is doing, uh, is uh, loved by all the students and I encourage any of you who are interested in going to law school and think that, they might, that you might like to do work on behalf of immigrants or immigration law work to come and uh, mob her afterwards to ask her <laughs> advice about law school and about what she does, because I don't know if she's gonna talk about it, but she's done great work on behalf of victimized women um, in the community who are trying to um, get asylum and have um, their immigration status normalized. Jay Shree. Thank you. Well, I'm very excited to be here today. It's not often that I get to speak to the undergraduates here at Stanford. And thank you so much, Professor Boba, for inviting me uh, to participate in this great panel. What I'm going to do is uh, focus on some of the proposals that Congress considered last uh, year when it looked at the question of comprehensive immigration reform. And I want to get really practical here. I'm just going to talk about the proposals, some of the arguments made, and what I think you can expect as we look at the next session of Congress, and it'll be a really interesting one, in terms of the debate about how to fix our broken immigration system. All right, before I start, into all of that. I wanted to give you a very quick overview of immigration. I don't think I've ever done it in one slide before, but this is my attempt. Um, so there are a number of reasons why uh, the immigration law envisions people entering the country. And the two main reasons is entering to work and entering to join family. And we often hear about green cards. Green cards are lawful permanent resident status is the strongest immigration status you can have without being a citizen. So what I'm talking about when I say enter to work or enter to join family is people who, try to, who want to come here 
and stay permanently as green card holders or legal permanent residents uh, because they want to work here or because they want to join family members, brothers, sisters, parents, children who are already in the United States and who already have permanent legal status in the United States. These two groups of people I want to distinguish from the group of people we think of as temporary visitors and those are people who come here for tourism, who come here with student visas, who come here to work temporarily. Those are people who, who the immigration law imputes an understanding of not wanting to stay here permanently. So here I'm talking about people who want to stay here permanently. They enter to work or to join the family. As to people who want to enter permanently, the immigration laws impose quotas. And this comes as somewhat of a surprise to a lot of people um, that the quota system is this very strange and weird relic of our immigration legal history. And in particular, that quotas used to be based on now um, disfavored racial categories. And our current quota system is a strange outgrowth of our previous uh, quota systems. How the quota system works right now is that there are two big, two main quotas. One, there's a worldwide quota. That's the total number of people who are allowed to enter the United States legally to be able to stay permanently and able to stay permanently. And the second is a country by country quota. And that is a cap on a country by country basis of how many people can enter from a particular country. So that sounds kind of confusing, right? There are so many countries in the world, but basically what it means is that regardless of which country you come from, the equality is across countries and not across people. So if you're a person trying to come to the United States because you're married to a US citizen and you're uh, I'm sorry, that you, if you're married to a legal permanent resident and you're from China, you're going to have to wait a lot longer than somebody who's married to a legal permanent resident who's from Chile. And that's because China and Chile are treated equally, not the person from China and the person from Chile. Okay, so that's another little wrinkle of our quota system. And the result, of course, is long delays. So right now, the way the immigration system shakes out, if you're waiting to come to the United States to work or to join family, and you're from Mexico, India, China, or the Philippines, you're facing really long delays. OK, so what happens when no visas are available, when no, there are no slots, none of these legal slots, all the quota spots are, are not available and people are stuck in this position of waiting in line? Um, the result or one of the things that happens is that there's a large undocumented population. I'm sure you might have seen these numbers before, uh, but I think it's worth repeating. There are currently estimated to be about 11 to 12 million undocumented migrants who live in the United States. And although the common stereotype is that people cross the border and enter, and that's how they become undocumented or without papers, there's another way to become undocumented, and that's to overstay temporary permission to be in the United States. So if you come to the US and you say, I'm going to be a student and I'll leave here when I finish my education, but you don't leave, then you become undocumented. So the current estimate is about a little less than 500,000 people a year join this undocumented population. It's a pretty steep growth. And uh, recent numbers from the Pew Hispanic Center are that undocumented workers are about 5% of the workforce. The way Congress understands 
uh, undocumented migration is that people who come here or who stay overstay visas come here for the same reasons that people who come here with valid visas come, and that is to either work or to join family. And that's sort of the core of all of the immigration proposals in Congress, that, 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 they, that Congress people understand uh, immigration, regardless of whether it's with papers or without papers, to be for the same, essentially the same reasons. Okay, I'm gonna go through some of the reform proposals now. The first is increased employer sanctions. And here the idea is that by punishing employers who hire undocumented workers, a fewer undocumented workers are going to come into the states. Uh, this proposal was already tried out in the past, uh, in the late 1980s, and hasn't worked so well. So I'm not gonna focus on it so much today, but I wanted to uh, mention it. Another proposal, and this is definitely part of the comprehensive package, is increasing the quota. So if the quotas aren't high enough, and we're not letting enough people in so that there's a pressure for undocumented migration, one way to solve the problem is to increase the quotas. Interestingly, none of the proposals that Congress considered increased the quotas to totally eliminate the backlog. So that person from China who's been waiting for years and years would not necessarily make it through because of the congressional proposals. All that would happen is that the, the quota would be increased kind of incrementally, so a few more people would be allowed in. And it's, it's a quota increases are only really a part of a comprehensive solution as envisioned by Congress. One of the more controversial proposals is a temporary or guest worker program, and I'm gonna come back to this in a moment. As well, a proposal to legalize, or what some people call grant amnesty, to those who are already here without papers. And I'll come back to that as well, and as well to the topic of border enforcement, uh, which is whether and how to, in, to protect or increase protection or decrease protection at our border with uh, Mexico and our, at our airports. So before I come back to those three proposals, the guest worker program, legalization, and border enforcement, I wanted to pause for a second about the things that don't get media coverage because I know that those three things got a lot of coverage in all the various newspapers. And that is other enforcement proposals that are targeted at, an, at unpopular immigrant groups. And by unpopular groups, I mean people who are labeled to be terrorist aliens or criminal aliens. And those are pejorative uh, terms, but terms, unfortunately, in our immigration laws. So this is what we didn't discuss in the public uh, domain. The, both the Senate and the House proposals, and I should mention that the Senate bill that passed was lauded uh, by many immigrant rights groups as a great bill, but many immigrants' rights groups also had a lot of problems with it, and at the end of the day, it was not supported, I would say, by the majority of grassroots and legal advocacy groups in Washington. And the reason why is because in order to get some of the good provisions uh, about guest workers or legalization, depending on whether you think they're good proposals, um, Congress made some really difficult choices and didn't, in their, war, in their uh, perspective, make the right choices when it came to enforcement as to these unpopular groups. So one of the things that we didn't discuss is that the comprehensive reform bills expanded detention of non-citizens, and in particular expanded the idea 
of who could be detained on a mandatory basis, and that means detention without a bond hearing, without somebody deciding as a, in, on an individual basis whether you are a danger or a flight risk, but just detention based on category. The idea that someone, because of a criminal conviction or because of an immigration violation, is per se so dangerous that they don't need an individual hearing to determine whether they're individually dangerous. And that was one of the things that was expanded uh, by the uh, comprehensive uh, proposal. Another expansion was the kinds of crimes that made somebody deportable. One of the trends in the immigration law has been to expand the category of people called criminal aliens. And criminal aliens are people who are put into deportation proceedings because of past criminal convictions. Uh, the expansion is done in a kind of sneaky way. What happens is that Congress defined a term called aggravated felony. Now, when you think of aggravated felony, you think of something really horrible. But what it did is it, it keeps shoehorning through these various bills more and more crimes into the aggravated felony definition. So whereas before, it's say, in, say, 1990, we understood aggravated felony to mean fairly serious crimes, now aggravated felony could include counterfeiting. It could include... Uh, uh, in some, for a while, it included three DWI or DUI uh, offenses. It includes, it could include, and the Supreme Court is considering whether it should include drug possession. So crimes that we don't, we may not think of as so serious are now considered to be aggravated felonies. And one of the things that the comprehensive reform packages did is expand those definitions. And then a last and very important topic is, uh, the idea of what kind of role local police should be playing in immigration enforcement. Again, this is something that gets glossed over maybe because it's uh, not as, um, as compelling as a, as a legalization question, but, uh, but it is really important in immigrant communities, the question of whether an undocumented individual or undocumented communities can access law enforcement or not. Um, and what the proposals considered is one of two things, either actually deputizing local law enforcement agents, so this would be the Palo Alto Police Department, to enforce the immigration laws, or kind of doing it in a sneaky way, which is putting the names of immigration violators into what's called the NCIC, or National Crime Information Center database. And the NCIC database is the database that cops access when they pull people over for routine traffic stops. So you know when you get pulled over for a traffic stop and the cop goes back to his car and he types, or she types something into her computer and comes back and asks you some questions, that thing, that typing, is looking your name up in the NCIC database. So imagine if you're somebody who's undocumented, suddenly a routine traffic stop could turn into a total nightmare because your name appears in the NCIC database. You could be put into deportation proceedings. So those are the kinds of proposals that were not only considered, but that were included in both the House and Senate versions of the bill um, that we read all about in the papers and we read all about mostly in the context of the legalization provisions. So before I get to those legalization provisions, I wanted to spend some time on this because I, I think it's often ignored in the immigration debate how we vilify and expand the category of, uh, of criminal, so-called criminal aliens. Okay, now to the three proposals that Congress considered and con will probably continue to consider in terms of solving the problem of undocumented migration. The first is a temporary worker program, or so-called guest worker program. And this is 
premised on the idea of work and return, that people will come here, work for a while, and return. It's a limited duration. The one that uh, passed in the Senate was one that was uh, three years with plus another three years extension. And these programs are based on this idea of circular migration, an idea that migration uh, happens on a circular basis. People come here not only for greater salary, greater wages, but also to uh, solve economic problems in their home country, to send money back home, to buy houses back home, and that they would return if there were no immigration penalties. In other words, if we didn't make it so hard to cross the border, people would actually go back after a limited period of time. That's somewhat of a controversial question if that would actually happen, but that's the theory behind the guest worker program. So let me tell you a little bit of the critique. Most of the immigrants' rights group and groups and grassroots groups, people uh, including the workers themselves, oppose the temporary worker program. And they had a number of different critiques. One is that it, it creates an incentive for people not to become valued workers. In other words, that if you want to work somewhere and you want to put yourself into your work, you want to feel as though you can stay there. You, the workplace wants to encourage these workers to develop skills and you want, you as a worker, want to uh, develop those ties. And that, there's no incentive for that if you know that you're going to leave. A second one, and this is something that we've seen with other temporary worker programs, because by the way, we already have a temporary worker program in the immigration laws. This would just be an expansion, is a problem of employer abuse. And uh, in particular, the idea that an employer who controls your visa can say, you know what, I don't want you to unionize. Or you know what, don't report those poor working conditions. I don't care if, I don't, if, I, if my employ place of employment doesn't comply with uh, the occupational health laws. If you report it, I'm not going to sponsor you for a visa, so you better think really carefully before you make your decision. Temporary workers um, and other workers called the temporary worker program report to deport. That was the, the language that they used. And the reason it's report to deport is in our, day, in our world of technology, if you enter a database as a temporary worker, the government from then on knows who you are, where you are, when you enter, when you leave. So all of your entries, all of your exits can be tracked. And if you violate even mildly the immigration laws, you could be deported and uh, workers oppose that kind of monitoring. And the last is that, that the, a temporary worker program didn't really recognize the ties that people developed to the United States. Even in a three or six year period, individuals develop ties to the U.S. They want to stay longer, whether through work, community, family, etc. And, and those were ignored in a temporary worker style program. And one of the solutions to some of these problems that the Senate bill considered is um, a pathway to legalization. And this is somewhat controversial because some of these problems aren't really solved by allowing your employer to sponsor you to get permanent legal status. Okay, so that was one pr proposal. The second one is legalization. And so, very simply put, legalization means permanent status for people who are here who are undocumented, right? But the, the harder question is, who gets legalization? How do you show that you should be, get legal status if you're here and you're undocumented? The term that Congress used is earned legalization, this idea that only 
people we think are good, who have complied with the laws except for their immigration issues, are entitled to, to remain in the United States. So that means people who work and maintain a, a continuous work history, people who don't have criminal convictions, no prior deportation orders, and who have a longer residence in the United States. Um, some interesting questions are raised by this, and this is another reason why, uh, why legalization as it was passed by the Senate wasn't really supported uh, by immigrants' rights groups. Some of the problems raised is one is, is an implementation problem, right? How, if you think about 11 to 12 million people, putting them through an administrative process of legalization seems like a complete nightmare. Another question is fraud and what problems there are with fraud. Uh, this is raised by some uh, lawmakers. And another question raised by some lawmakers is the idea that legalization is, is retrospective instead of prospective. You're looking at people who are already here, who have already violated the immigration laws. You're not looking forward to see who you want to admit. These are, these are some of the concerns of, of conservative lawmakers. There were other concerns as well, and these were from immigrants' rights advocates. And mainly these were that the way that legalization has been proposed is in a tiered system. And the tiered system would be people who are here for a longest period of time with no convictions are entitled to relief. People who are here for a short period of time who had uh, even minor convictions are not entitled to relief. And immigrants' rights groups didn't want to draw those kinds of distinctions within the community, and that's why they opposed legalization. So there, are, there, were dis there was disagreement kind of on both sides of the immigration debate about the legalization proposals. Let me end with the last uh, part of the comprehensive immigration reform debate, and that's border enforcement. So I'm sure you've heard in, with past speakers and particularly economists about current enforcement and its effects, and in, in particular, the idea that current enforcement really isn't working. Uh, there's been more than a tenfold increase in border enforcement expenditures in the last decade or so, which means more border patrol, more enforcement, more surveillance, more militarization, and at the same time, you've seen a drastic increase in the amount of undocumented migration. Um, so all border enforcement has resulted in is more deaths at the border. Now there are about 460 in uh, fiscal year 2005, and making it more expensive for people to cross the border. Um, and here there's a real nexus between how expensive it is to cross the border and how profitable it is for a smuggler or a trafficker to take someone across the border. Uh, the more complicated the U.S. government makes it to cross the border, the more profitable it is, is, it, it is for uh, smugglers or traffickers to take people across the border. The price of crossing the border has gone up and that leads to exploitation at the border. I'm not going to cover this because I'm not an economist, but there's obviously a trade and migration nexus at the border, and in particular, the idea that if we have, after NAFTA, uh, free movement of goods, the question is what kind of free movement of people do we need to accompany that? And that should be part of the debate and certainly has been part of the debate. I think the really hard question that Congress is going to grapple with um, over the next year or so if, as it comes back to look at some of these immigration measures is not so much should we have more higher quotas, should we have legalization of some kind, should we have 
uh, some sort of temporary worker program, but what kind of enforcement can we live with? If the current enforcement doesn't work, if it's inhumane, if it causes migrant deaths, how should we reform that enforcement to make it uh, more acceptable? And that's a really practical nuts and bolts debate that advocates have to have um, in order to succeed in meaningful reform uh, at the national level. That's, I'm going to end with that. Our next speaker is Professor Alejandro Portas. Um, he is Professor of Sociology and the Director of the Center for Migration and Development at Princeton University. Um, he is one of the most uh, eminent scholars of uh, migration, international migration, um, anywhere. And so we're very fortunate to have him uh, here to speak to us today. Will be easily easy to do because you're going to see that on one slide. Period. That's all I'm going to say. Well, it's great to be here. Uh, I think that this were uh, very interesting uh, prior presentations by the speakers that preceded me, and I think that both uh, that that will be there will be room both for agreement and for and for debate. Uh, the general pers I, I would like to that is what I like to dedicate these 20 minutes is to what I'm going to call the disconnect and then to make some concrete policy suggestions that uh, seem to me more realistic in the present environment. The general perception of the foreign population among the native-born, uh, the public is not grounded in an, in an understanding of the historical linkages between the U.S. and the countries of origin, or by knowledge of the social and economic forces that drive the phenomenon. The public view generally is guided by surface impressions. When foreign accents and faces are few, they are ignored. However, when they grow in number and concentrate in visible spaces, they trigger increasing apprehension. Natives are put on the defensive. They fear that their way of life and their control of the levers of political and economic power will be lost to the newcomers. The sentiment today is expressing familiar outcries that we hear today, such as, quote, the end of white America, Earlier on, the mongrelization of the race, uh, today the rise of Mexifornia, and more, more uh, lately the Hispanic challenge, uh, referred to by Professor Lee, uh, that was a word of Huntington. The policies that stem from these fears have followed two basic paths, to exclude the newcomers or to Americanize them as fast as possible. These two positions define the two great ideologies toward immigration among the general public, the native population. They have in common that since neither is rooted in an understanding of the real forces at play, their transformation into policy often leads to consequences that are commonly the opposite of those intended. The first ideology, one, might, one may label intransigent nativism. This, this uh, orientation seeks to stop all or most immigration, expel the unauthorized, and put remaining immigrants on notice that they occupy for a while at least an inferior, an inferior position, ineligible for the privileges of citizens. The supporters of intransigent nativism look mainly to the present, 
they do not know or care to know about the factors underlying immigration or the history of the process. They give instead expression to immediate concerns, the discomfort, the anxieties of the native population. Accordingly, they lash out not against the true sources of migration, but against the migrants themselves. Success for this position consists in rendering the foreign element invisible once again. Uh, intransigent nativism finds expression at a number of levels ranging from elite intellectuals, like uh, Jennifer Lee uh, referred to as Professor Huntington, to um, nativist politicians such as Congressman Tancredo of Colorado, St. Sembrenner of Wisconsin, all the way to radio and television commentators such as Lou Dobbs. The second mainstream ideology is actually less irrational than the first. Forced assimilationism does look at the past, but less to find the origins of contemporary immigration than to search for ways in which prior flows were separated from their cultures and integrated promptly into the American mainstream. The nation's success in absorbing so many foreigners in the past is, as, is attributed by this position to its relentless hostility to the perpetuation of cultural enclaves and the immersion of foreign children into an English-only environment that made Americans out of them in the course of a single generation. And indeed, this is true. The United States is a veritable cemetery of languages in which the most varied immigrant backgrounds from German to Italian, from Chinese to Spanish, have disappeared into a monolingual world into the course of two or at best three generations. So assimilationists want the future to mirror this past as a proven way to restore unity and peace. Though less traumatic than the effects of nativist exclusionary campaigns, forced assimilationism also has important consequences that should be noted. First, policies derived from this ide ideology delegitimize the culture and the language that immigrant parents bring along. And by instilling in their children the sense that their linguistic heritage is inferior and should be abandoned, that ideology drives a wedge across generation, often weakening parental authority and efforts of, efforts of the parents to protect the children against the many dangers confronting them uh, in the schools and in the streets. Another consideration, and I cannot dwell on this at, at length, but we'll return to it, is the changing position of the United States in the world economy. By remaining fixed in the past, this ideology assimilation is forced assimilationism, neglect the changes that have been happening all around in the last half century. 100 years ago, immigrants came from remote lands to fill the labor needs of a rapidly industrializing country. Few other ties link sending nations with the United States. At present, however, sending countries are increasingly part of a single global web in which the United States plays a core role. And in this new world order, in which economic, political, and cultural ties bind nations ever closer, it is not clear that the rapid extinction of foreign languages in America is in the interest of individual citizens or of the country as a whole. The urgent search for fluent Arabic speakers to staff government intelligence services in the wake of 9-11 uh, stand as the latest example of a commonly repeated saga in which the global communication needs of the country are sorely served by a uniformly monolingual population. 
in an increasingly interdependent global system, the existence of pools of American citizens able to communicate fluently in, in, English, in English plus another language represents not a threat to cultural integration, but a resource and a source of enlightenment for individuals and communities alike. So despite being grounded on a reflection of the country's past, forced assimilationist policies are ultimately reactionary. They reflect a wish to return America to its, state, to its state at the beginning of the last century, the 19th century, not as it must be in a new millennium after it emerged at the core of the global system. And in the process, online assimilationism undermines the forces of parental authority and ambition that can make the difference in guiding the second generation around major obstacles today to successful adaptation. Underneath, however, these are the ideologies. I think that I, this is time to put this one. Where do I scroll? Oh, I scroll. Uh, this, on the one side, these are the ideologies. This is what, what people in Washington discuss. They debate and the pundits go back and forth what we should do, exclude them, assimilate them, and so on. But what happens is that underneath all these debates about immigrant exclusion, assimilation, there is the hard reality of economic interest and economic survival. There are also real concerns about the growth prospects of this nation depending, as always, on the labor supply. In the post-industrial era, the American labor market has become increasingly bifurcated into an upper tier of professional and technical occupations requiring advanced credentials and a lower tier of manual occupations requiring physical strength and few skills in sectors like agriculture, construction, the food industry, and personal services. This is a new hourglass labor market in which we live with demand at the top, at the bottom, and it has been documented in, by a number of studies that has another important fact, namely the scarcity, the increasing scarcity of domestic workers to fill the bottom half of this hourglass. A report from the Congressional Budget Office summarizes the contemporary situation like this, quote, it's from the, from the Congress, the US, the U.S. economy faces a demographic challenge to its future growth. Among the native-born population, fertility rates are falling. Worker, workers are growing older and better educated, and labor force participation rates are flattening. However, the economy continues to create a large number of less skilled jobs that favor younger and less educated workers. These divergent trends present an obstacle to continued labor force growth, which is, essential, which is an essential component of economic growth in general. Barring unlikely increases in productivity growth rates, expansion of the workforce is crucial to sustain growth in the labor-intensive industries that generate the greatest numbers of less skilled jobs. Labor immigration provides the answers to these needs, to these very real needs of the economy. By reason of size, of being right next to the border, geographical proximity and history, Mexico, not India, not China, have become, has become the real labor reservoir for the American economy. This huge economy, as of the latest count, surpassing $12 trillion, more than the largest 15 European economies put together, generates a huge demand at both ends of the hourglass. Mexico is not really a, is not really a poor country, but a middle-income nation. However, its proximity to the United States and the approximately seven to one wage gap at present, meaning that a, a Mexican peasant can earn in an hour 
here what it would take approximately a day to earn there, uh, continues to create an incentive for peasants and workers to seek to join their co-nationals working at least for a while in the United States. From an academic perch of privilege uh, in, a, in an Ivy League or a lucrative post at a Washington think tank, it is easy to pontificate about largely illusory threats that this, while ignoring these facts on the ground. For the same Mexican migrant workers that is so harshly described in nativist tracts is the one for whom thousands of American enterprises, from mom and pop businesses to large corporations, all the way to the largest, Walmart, are clamoring. As the same, well, the same, the Congressional Budget Office also have very telling things to say about the, the fact that the labor supply for this bottom of the American hourglass is rapidly declining, and uh, at the same time that, that even today it's immigrants who are rapidly beginning to fill the gap. And here you have, that's uh, sort of the realities here, and then you have the question of social networks that also create ties that are very difficult to, uh, to break. In the interest of time, I'm not going to refer to the social networks between the immigrants and their families, but to refer to the fact that networks are established not only between migrants and their kin and friends in the countries of origins, but between migrants and their employers. Every time a building contractor or a restaurant owner approaches one of his migrant workers for a referral, every time the manager of a corporate chain con contacts one of his uh, cleaning subcontractors for additional services, they mobilize networks that run deep into Mexico, Central America, and other sending nations. As businesses in a number of sectors come to rely more and more on immigrants, it is only logical that openings to be filled through, the, through their networks as they provide for employers the most efficient and most reliable way to access new needed labor. The fit between the needs of thousands of American firms for manual labor and the motivations of Mexican and Central American workers who take these jobs as a means to fulfill their life aspiration is so strong as to defy today any attempt at repression. Build fences at places in the Mexico-US border and the flow just moves elsewhere, elsewhere braving the, de the desert and death if necessary deport an, an unauthorized worker with a suitable jobs and he or she will find a way to return. So this peculiar gap between, on the other hand, the history and political economy of immigration on the right and public views of the process is portrayed here. Restrictionist cries for enforcement of the border have moved on the basis of the ideologies on the left, move Republican and Democratic administrations alike to pour more and more money into the border patrol in a vain effort to stem the flow. By 2005, the border patrol has become the largest arms-bearing branch of the federal government, except for the army itself, with a budget of about 1.5 million. The country, as was pointed out by, uh, before by the former speaker, has precious little to show for this massive expenditure in personnel and equipment. The flow from south of the border gives no sign of abating. Every year during the last decade, the Border Patrol has reported around 1 million apprehensions and deportations. And all existing studies of unauthorized immigration report that deported migrants that are deported try again and again. 
a repeated trials models by my colleague Thomas Spenshade calculates the possibility of appreci appreciation at any one trial. He calculated it back in the mid-1980s at about a third, 0.32. Uh, by the third trial, almost every migrant manages to cross successfully. Although border patrol, patrol apprehension statistics are caseload figures rather than actual individuals, the high probability of successful entry after repeated trials make them a conservative estimate of the size of the unauthorized uh, flow. And actually the probability of being captured at the border has been declining. As the border patrol goes up, the probability of capture declines. It, it, it drops down to about 0.10. Why? Because of the professionalization of smuggling. It used to be that it was only uh, that people can, could cross on their own. Now it costs about $3,000 to hire a, a smuggler, but it had become an industry. A number of scholars and researchers have noted the effect of the increasing difficulty and cost of border crossing, which has not been able to deter the flow, but to render it more permanent. So the previously cyclical pattern of Mexican migration in which migrant workers came to harvest crops and engage in other seasonal work prior to returning home have been stopping its tracks by, uh, by the militarization of the border. The, rise, the result had been a rise of a permanent unauthorized population here. So in a sense, the effect of the border and the militarization of the border has not been to keep unauthorized labor migrants out, rather it has been to keep them in because once they are here, it's very costly to go. Once they do that, the two other things happen. First, uh, the first is the gradual movement east of this population in search of employment opportunities and greater securities. That mass demographic movement has transformed what previously was a purely regional phenomenon, the Southwest and the Midwest, into a national one. Only 15 years ago, unauthorized immigrants were found overwhelmingly in the southwestern states plus Illinois. Today, they are present in all 50 states and an increasing number in the eastern seaboard. So, heightened repression, so dear to the self-appointed guardians of national integrity, has had exactly the opposite consequence. That is, transformed what was a regional phenomenon into a permanent, permanent population of the unauthorized. The second and still more poignant and important consequence of what happens at the border is what happens to the children of these migrants. The decision of unauthorized workers who cannot return to bring their families along is a key factor underlying the emergence of a second generation that grows up in conditions of unique disadvantage. So it, that is, if, if there is a problem with the second generation, if there is the core problem of a danger of downward assimilation, is with the children of the unauthorized working on this. Children of these migrants do assimilate to American values and aspiration, but with very limited material and social resources to achieve them. Those youth are at risk of downward assimilation compounding the spectacle of poverty, despair, and crime in the nation's inner cities. So the policies of restrictionism and repressive border enforcement can produce what they fear, namely the continuation of major ethnic and racial inequalities and the reproduction of a marginalized population at the bottom of society. This self-fulfilling prophecy is the gravest consequences of the current immig uh, immigration policy. And despite its patent failures, 
Others in Congress claim for more of the same, more borders, longer borders, more enforcement, and so on, when that policy has led to this uh, to these very negative consequences in, extent, in the sense of a stable, uh, already a, um, a, a unauthorized population, and the growth of a second generation on conditions of singular disadvantage. There is a better way. And that way consists in bringing the unauthorized labor flow above ground and regulating it. By reasons of history and geographic location, has, Mexico has become the de facto low-skilled labor reservoir for the American economy. In collaboration with the government of Mexico, that flow can be managed and can be controlled. A bipartisan proposal to that effect was advanced in 2005 by Senators Edward Kennedy and John McCain, but it became bogged down in the Senate, competing, among others, with Congressman Sensenbrenner bill and King bill that would criminalize unauthorized immigrants and those who wish to help them, and Congressman Tancredo's perennial effort to fence the entire country, not only the Mexican border, but the Canadian to boot, sort of tied in a put a Chinese wall around the country. Here is an alternative proposal that takes into account the considerable proactive capacity of the Mexican government and lines it up with the real interests of the United States. Feds first set up a temporary labor program. Every Mexican with a certifiable work contract in the United States could cross the border legally upon payment of $2,000, which is about two-thirds two of the estimated current price to hire a smuggler. Second, per, the permit will be valid for three years, renewable for another three, and upon return to Mexico, the migrant gets half of the entry payment as an, in, as an incentive to return. Third, migrants who wish to remain in the United States after six years will be able to adjust to permanent residence under a special preference category, with eligibility limited to those without a criminal record and endorsement, and with an endorsement of U.S. employer. Uh, next, unauthorized migrants already in the United States could return to Mexico and apply for legal entry permits. They will be given pres preference over new entrants upon presentation of proof of residence in the United States and a work contract. Next, as an incentive for families to remain in the country, the Mexican government will implement special health, education, and job training programs for the spouses and the children of migrants working on their program in the United States. This is very important because we tend to see migrations only from the, only from the receiving side. And indeed, migration is not a receiving phenomenon. It's a two-way phenomenon. Not most migrants want to live here. I mean, the, the, the general tendency is a preference for the country where they were born and to raise their children there. So in this way, we can involve both governments and, and the effort to uh, maintain the families at home. The program capped at one million at the beginning, which is commensurate with a conservative estimate of the annual undocumented flow at present. After, after a, a trial period, if it proves successful, the program may be extended to migrant sending countries in Central America, such as El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. These measures will have the, the following practical advantages, and I would sort of end with them. First, by giving migrant laborers legal standing in the country, they will eliminate the worst abuses by unscrupulous employers, some of whom have reduced their workers to a condition of semi-slavery. 
Second, the measures will allow trade unions to better organize migrant workers, again reducing their vulnerability and simultaneously their attractiveness for firms that rely on exploitable labor. Because the coming in is not tied to an employer. That is, once they come in, they would be free to move. It's not like the old Bracero program. Third, it will actively involve the governments of the sending country as well, turning unilateral repression, which is what exists today, into a bilateral labor management program, which is what both countries actually need. You cannot free, as in the North American Free Trade Agreement, the commodity market, the financial market, and so on, and keep the labor market bottled up through military force. Fourth, it will create incentives for migrants to return home and to invest in small businesses and other productive activities. Fifth, and more importantly, it will motivate them to keep their families and children at home, avoiding the worst problems that we see associated today with a poor and marginalized second generation. To conclude, give me one minute. NIMBY is the acronym coined to refer to those who support construction of public facilities, but not in my backyard. Remember, NIMBY, not in my bag. In parallel fashion, I think that we may call coin PULAM to refer to those, P-U-L-L-A-M, to refer to those who have succeeded in America, which to quote, pull the ladder after me. Uh, this syndrome actually is quite common among recent descendants of immigrants. To cite but a few examples, a senator of Japanese origin, S.I. Hayakawa, founded U.S. English out of his preoccupation that foreign languages would undermine the dominance of English. Ronald Ons, a second generation Jewish millionaire, today spends his money and time to pressure cook most of the, his recent counterparts into English monolingualism. And Congressman Tom Tancredo, the fiery xenophobe who advocates fencing not only the Mexican but the Canadian border, is the grandson of Italian immigrants. Nativists and forced assimilationists, including Pulam advocates, who stole their own paths while attacking those who came after them, will undoubtedly continue to appear. Indeed, they proliferate today, making political hate out of this disconnect between the structural needs of the economy and the fears of the native population. They will be discredited. Immigrants and refugees will continue to give rise to viable communities, filling positions at different levels of the economy, and adding to the diversity of sounds, signs, sights, and tastes of American cities. This is a nation of nations, and, the, and its history is to a large extent the history of the arrival, struggles, and absorption of its immigrants. And I think that despite the rising chorus of xenophobia and restrictionism as we discuss this matter today, the future will mirror the past. Thank you. Okay. Uh, our last present presentation for uh, the evening will be Professor Ari Zolberg. Professor Zolberg is director of the International Center for Migration, Ethnicity, and Citizenship at the New School for Social Research. He's professor of political science there. Um, and he's written too many things for me to uh, tell you about them. Many uh, of them look quite interesting about um, uh, West Africa in particular. Um, and he is currently either completing or maybe has completed, because I think I saw chunks of it, uh, a book called A Nation by Design, Immigration Policy, 
in the uh, Fashioning of America, which is uh, being published by Harvard University Press. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to hear what he has to say. Thank you very much. Uh, the book, by the way, is here. It's been out for a few months. Uh, in listening to my colleagues, I largely altered what I was going to say, and I'm going to try to relate to what they said to a greater extent than I would have done otherwise by focusing basically on three things. Uh, one of them is, the, I think, a basic principle uh, which, I, which I call in the last chapter of my book the Melville Principle, because Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, served on an immigrant ship at the time of the Irish Great Hunger, which was not only Irish, but all northern, I mean, the potato famine was all over northern Europe, all the way up to Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, and so on. People really were dependent on the potato, which was at the root of the uh, demographic revolution of the late 18th, early 19th century but I won't give you my potato lecture now, for which I was very famous uh, when I taught undergraduates at the University of Chicago. <laughs> so I'll skip the potato lecture, but just as a reminder, and focus on Melville, who argued uh, after his experience on an immigrant ship uh, that the whole world belongs to the whole world. Who are we to keep people out? And I think that's really a good foundation on which to think about immigration policy. What gives us the right to keep anybody out? I mean, we just happen to be either born or living in, in a particular country at a particular time. But uh, what rights does that give us? I mean, the resources of that country, uh, why can, why, what right do we have to keep it only to ourselves? We didn't build the country. We just happened to come on the scene at, at a particular point in its history. So I think that's something we really have to remember as an ethical principle, I think, when we get started on the whole thing. That being said, we also have to be realistic. And here I'm commenting largely on, uh, on uh, I think, Alex Portis's point about uh, things that are pending before Congress or that, are, that are likely to come up over the next few years. I mean, the last big law that was passed, other, I'm not talking about the Patriot Act, and stuff like that, but the last serious immigration law was enacted in 1986, it was called the Immigration Reform and Control Act. And um, it provided legalization for about uh, three million people at the time. So uh, obviously there is a capacity to do that, but it was coupled. In order to get it through, it took five years to negotiate the law. In order to get it through, you have to get votes from the other side in the Congress. And uh, so it was coupled with uh, a new form of enforcement, employer control. So every American employer was supposed to control the, the legal status of the employees. And that was literally never enforced. But all the chambers of commerce came, came out against it and said that employers simply didn't have the capacity to, to police these things or to verify things like social security card. If you come up with a social security number, uh, who is Walmart to check whether it's real or not? Uh, so it, literally that part was, I mean, it was part of the package deal in order to get it through the Congress, but it was never enforced and it was dropped very quickly. 
even though it's still on the books. Uh, so the legalization actually took place. But the, the point that I'm trying to make is that every time there was a liberalization of any immigration law, there had to be sort of another side because in order to get the votes. For example, though you talked about the quotas, but the old quotas, the, the, the racist quotas, were dropped in 1965 after the death of John Kennedy uh, under Johnson. But in, uh, to, uh, until then, there had been no annual limit on immigration from the Western Hemisphere. And in order to get that through Congress, to, to get these racial quotas out, which had lasted from the 1920s, and which included uh, for a very long, long time uh, total uh, Asian, exclu Asian exclusion, as well as, as uh, nasty quotas against Southern and Eastern Europeans, directed mostly against Italians and, and Eastern European Jews. Uh, in order to get that through, uh, they had to, uh, the, the reformers had to accept the imposition of an annual limit on Western Hemisphere immigration, and which until then had been literally unlimited. There were no, no limit on numbers. So uh, politics requires these kinds of package deals. And that's based on the fact that immigration involves two very different dimensions. One that's been referred to a lot is uh, you might call the identity or cultural dimension. This fear that this fear of and that's, that's occurred with every new wave. I mean, it started at the time of Benjamin Franklin and Jefferson, who were worried about Germans coming in, and they were worried that German, the German language would take over in the U.S. And that, con that concern continued until World War I, when German was finally literally abolished from the teaching of in most American schools for quite a while. There were public schools in Chicago at the time which used German as part of the education, just as there are Spanish-speaking classes in many cities now. And uh, so this enforcement of English uh, took a long time to come about. Um, but uh, so but this uh, cultural dimension, this business of trying to have to erect uh, internal boundaries against the influence of of different cultures is a recurrent phenomenon. And that's one dimension uh, of alignment for and against immigration. Obviously, people from that, those cultures tend to be more favorable to those cultures. So uh, uh, Latinos or people of Hispanic origin living in the US tend to be more favorably inclined to other Latinos, just as Jews are more favorably inclined toward other Jews coming in, and, and Irish toward more Irish. I mean, that's kind of a recurrent kind of thing of identity solidarity of some sort. Ethnic solidarities come into play. Although African Americans are a little ambiguous on the thing about Africans coming in because of worry that uh, Africans often come in and might uh, shove them out of certain uh, niches that have been established. Uh, so it, it can lead to sort of ambiguous situations too. But generally, I think it is the case that co-ethnics tend to uh, favor co-ethnics as a very general rule. And people uh, who've had the ethnic experience tend to be more open-minded about new, uh, new ones too. 
the other dimension of, is obviously an economic or class dimension. And there you have di a different kind of alignment. So for example, uh, big corporations and the whole agricultural industry and the meatpacking are all pro-immigrant pro because they want the labor. And uh, even some conservative organizations such as the Manhattan Institute tend to be pro-immigration with regard to the recruitment of labor. And that has always led to, to again, to very amb uh, sort of ambiguous practices, especially with regard to Mexico, which has always been in a very special situation. Uh, and here I'm very much in, on, on the same wavelength as Alex Portes. I mean, there's no doubt when the U.S. started really enforcing immigration limits in the late 19th, early 20th century, it developed what I've called in my book a system of remote control, namely uh, you couldn't get on a ship to the, uh, since uh, you could only come to the United States on, in a container, a ship, and later on an airplane. You can't get on an airplane unless you show that you have the right credentials. So some, all of the airlines collaborate with U.S. immigration and in U.S. immigration enforcement, just as ships did starting in the 1880s already. And uh, that's relatively easy to do, I mean, to this kind of remote control system. But you can't do with Mexico. So uh, Mexico has always been in this very sort of special situation. In fact, the U.S. proactively promoted me Mexican immigration. Initially, to, uh, when it started excluding Chinese in California, uh, Chinese uh, who had been building the railroads in on, the on the Pacific side. When the U.S. decided to exclude uh, Chinese and then other Asians, it promoted immigration from Mexico to, repl to, to replace them. And in World War I, when immigration stopped because the Atlantic was closed uh, by the war and European immigration stopped, the U.S. promoted Im Mexican immigration again very proactively so that if you go to Chicago and Indiana, the whole Great Lakes region, all the, all the uh, sort of old Mexican communities started in World War I, not in World War II. I mean, in Gary, Indiana, and South Chicago and so on, all of those places really go back to World War I already. And uh, uh, Henry Ford recruited Mexicans um, in the 1920s. So there were, uh, again, this proactive promotion of Mexican immigration has been going on for a very long time. And the U.S. always, uh, whenever, and the concern over Mexican immigration also goes back a long time. And uh, those who promoted Mexican immigration always said, don't worry, these are birds of passage, they're not going to stay. So they have nothing to worry about. So uh, we have to recognize, realistically, that uh, you can't build a fence with Mex against Mexico uh, because people, the, the either you make a Berlin Wall and you, you're prepared to shoot people when they try to cross it, which nobody is going to do. And if I were an enemy of the U.S., I would sit there with a camera and take pictures of the building of that wall because I think from a foreign policy perspective, not only with regard to Latin America, with regard to the whole world. I think it's one of the worst ideas uh, that's ever been on the books. 
And it's really, I think, very, very dangerous idea. So if that's not going to work, there has to be something else. And since we know that the employer verification won't work because employers won't do it, then, uh, then I think some form of, uh, of a sort of a gradual legalization which will, has, which will be tied up to conditions because to get it through the Congress, there will have to be conditions attached to it. I think one condition which hasn't been mentioned tonight, but which I would add is uh, the uh, <coughs> is probably requirement of some sort of an English test. And again, I mean, as Jennifer Lee pointed out, there's no doubt that people really want to learn English. And we know that there are huge queues everywhere where English classes are available, there's a tremendous shortage of them. And there's very little uh, government money provided for English classes. So we know people really want to learn English, but they don't have the facilities to do so. So some of us in New York are now trying to start a, a kind of a non-profit organization to get, volunteer, to get college students to volunteer to teach English to both the young and young people and adults. And uh, we're, we're sort of just starting to try to do that. And I think it's a very crucial thing because we also know that the largest source of failure, sort of a, a high school dropouts, for example, is uh, poor English. And many uh, Latino families are now rebelling against bilingual education, which was probably a good idea initially, but it's now used in a sort of, it's one of these things that, that has negative consequences because a lot of schools shove Latino kids who, who, whose English is pretty good into these classes because they get subsidies uh, uh, for, uh, for these classes from the federal government. So I think those are the main things I want to talk about. But I think we, I really want to end on this notion that uh, with this new Congress now, I think there is an opportunity to, uh, to get a, a more constructive sort of law through. But I think it probably will include some conditions, including some sort of a guest worker program, and which, again, I'm not terribly happy about it. But I think if that's what it takes, then I think uh, it can become acceptable. And that's really all I, all I needed to say, I think. We'll leave more time for questions. Since especially since this is the last uh, evening of the um, class, is that we'll go right to questions. And so we have a roving uh, <laughs> Oprah-type scenario with the Phil Donahue with the microphones. And uh, so raise your hand if you have a question, or just come to the middle aisle so that you can ask the question. I mean, actually, we probably don't really need the microphone, but you know, you just go for it if you feel like you need it. We do need it. Oh, because we're iPodifying this. Okay, we do need it. Sorry, sorry about that. And there's a question over here. Do you believe you, we will have a comprehensive immigration reform package this year, or is it going to take like many, many years? Like the, one of you mentioned, 1986 immigration reform took like 10 years debate. Five years five years or whatever, it took a long time. Do you think we, we, we will see something this year or do you think it's going to take longer than that? Well, uh, I yeah. think it sort of depends on... Yeah, you can start. 
it sort of depends on how how it gets played. I think that there's a there's probably a reasonably good chance that the Kennedy some version of the Kennedy McCain bill that we, that which Alex Porter's mentioned will now get through the House, and I think uh, President Bush probably wants to recoup some of the Latino votes that that were lost in this election because when he was governor of Texas, he really played on that tried to get uh, Latinos to vote Republican, and they had done so, but they didn't do it this time. He, they really lost a lot of votes, so they may want to try to regain those votes. So I think uh, some of the more reasonable, and since a lot of the uh, extreme Republican conservatives were dropped out of the Congress altogether, I think there's probably a better chance of getting it through. On the other hand, there's, there has to be another hand it may be such a hot subject that it may be that nobody really wants to take the risk of, of being held responsible for a law like that uh, before the next presidential election because that could play in the hands of some extremists, extremist candidates in the, in the presidential election. So it's a, it's a kind of toss-up. I think employer sanctions have, first of all, uh, as I mentioned, uh, employers rebelled against it. I don't think they're ready to uh, unrebel, whatever, or to to do to uh, to accept it this time. Other questions? Well, this is to the second speaker. I don't recall your name. That's you. Uh, you you spoke. Uh, uh, immigrant rights groups opposition to current policy and to various proposals. I've been trying to find out whether these groups favor unlimited immigration or if not what limits they believe ought to be put on immigration and I don't know the answer. That's a good question. Um, I think, you know, it's hard because there's not one voice of all the immigrants' rights groups. I think what's happening is sort of uh, what the other speakers have referred to, which is what can we live with as immigrants' rights organizers and activists, and what, you know, what do we really want? Um, I, I think in terms of realistic proposals for the next couple of years, my guess is that there'll be non-controversial things like the DREAM Act, which would legalize uh, undocumented high school students that will kind of go through fairly easily. And, and be fairly uncontroversial. I think the, on the other side, programs that, that ask for legalization without uh, that many conditions for legalization will be challenging. But I think, that, I think the struggle is really going to be immigrants' rights groups fighting to ask for legalization with few restrictions on it. So people shouldn't be barred from legalizing because of criminal convictions. People shouldn't be barred because prior immigration violations or barred because of other, uh, because of work history and not paying taxes, et cetera. And I think that's where the struggle is really going to be is who do we want to allow to legalize um, and what kinds of restrictions are we going to put on that? And, and that's where I think the, the immigrants' rights uh, activists take a more, um, a, a broader perspective than, than maybe Congress will. Um, my question is for Alejandro Portes. And I um, first want to say I thought your description of the immigration problem and situation were very accurate right on, on the nail on the head. But my question is, what evidence do you have that in three years or six years, the immigrants who have 
temporary documented status will actually want to go home. $1,000 is a pretty low incentive, I think, for having been here that long. And um, while family ties may compel some to go home, there may be others who come here and have children here, um, you know, love interests here, jobs here, that they don't want to go home. In, in what way do we know we're not just pushing the problem out six years? I think that's, that's an excellent question, and because it allows me to, to develop a, a little more on these details. We can tinker with the figures. I mean, we can turn the whole thing 2,000, whatever, create some kind of incentive to return. But um, first of all, the fact of the matter is that sometimes the assumption on this side of the border is that everyone, everyone wants to come in and stay. Uh, that's taken for granted. Well. Let me tell you that is life in the United States is not a bed of roses for many people. And uh, it, gets, it gets to be pretty tough, especially when you are discriminated against, uh, when you face a, a number of difficulties. So if the past is any guide to the future, at the time that, there was that, that, that the border was relatively open, their cyclical migration was a reality, well documented by historical research and by my colleagues uh, Douglas Massey at Princeton. And, and this, it was almost a read the passage that young Mex Mexican peasants from the countryside in front in other areas will, will come north, work for a while, eventually return, raise their families, and their children then would go home. It, it mattered, it went, it went over generations a pattern that was broken by the, by the militarization of the border. Something that is, that is, is not only bad uh, from the point of view of, of bringing in this second generation, raising it in this, in this condition, but it's bad, it's bad in the long term for Mexico itself. Today, about, uh, that is, we have, that is, scholars in Mexico that collaborate with me calculate that one third, one third of Mexican municipalities have severely lost population during the last intercensal period. They are ghost towns, places that have completely been emptied of people because whereas before the cyclical migration allowed the vitality and contributed to those, now everybody's gone. So that, it, that, that certainly is not a, re a good recipe for development of the, of the sending nation and that's another consequences of this process. All of that said, it is true that mig migration of a temporary sort always leaves a segment behind, always leaves people who want to stay, who have established relationships with an employer or with a, with a mate or a spouse and so on and want to stay. There has to be a channel for those people as well. That is, they cannot be forced out. If not, you push into six years what you had now. Basically, the six years, <coughs> the six years create a a, a, a waiting period, it allows people to accumulate savings for those who can and will to have those savings and invest them back for those who want to return without the, they can go back and forth without the fear that they have keep their families there. And for those who at the end of the six years feel that they like it pretty well here, then there should be a special program in the immigration law to allow them to to, road, to graduate into permanent residence after a relatively short period of time with some uh, acceptable conditions. So we cannot rely exclusively on temporary labor, but I think that this arrangement is politically 
plausible in the present environment, and it's possibly is that where you cannot simply open the borders. That's not going. To, that's not going to happen. Simply not going to happen. And you can. And it would be in a sense in the interest of the of the major players in the economy. With all due respect. I think that immigrant rights organizations, I have great sympathy for them, but they are not going to prevail in the present environment. If an immigration law is going to be passed, it's because of the concatenation of, of other interests that are politically powerful. On the one hand, the government of Mexico, where it's very much set on having, a, on having the flow brought above board, and on the other hand, the corporate interests and the chambers of commerce and so on that need this labor. And the conservative right knows that. So it is an alliance between these interests represented in chambers of commerce and immigrant organizations that will bring that, that but pattern along the lines of the real players in this, uh, in this situation. So in that context, it seems to me that probably a, a big temporary labor program with uh, as few restrictions as possible and that can graduate into a permanent one will probably be the best, the better way to go. If I could just maybe propose a slightly uh, different perspective. Having worked a lot with temporary workers and with workers who are dependent on their employers for status, the potential for discrimination, abuse, and pressures not to unionize is, are very high when employers are able to control whether their employees can stay in the United States. And the temporary worker programs that have been considered and that are on the table are ones that, that impose pretty strict immigration penalties if somebody loses their job. They're temporary worker programs. They're not temporary residence programs. So the, the program rests on an employer's certification that the person should be here. And paths to legalization are dependent on an employer's application that somebody be allowed to stay. And with other temporary worker programs, we have seen uh, quite a bit of abuse. And particularly um, in my work with trafficking victims, one of the main sources of trafficking survivors and trafficking victims is temporary worker programs. It's precisely those programs that bring people here at the behest and control of their employer that create exploitative relationships. And the second point is, I think one of the challenges with thinking about the temporary worker program is that we not focus on um, that we recognize the changing nature of the immigrant workforce and that immigrant women uh, workers are an increasingly large component of that workforce. And so we have this, the understanding of families back home, et cetera, doesn't make as much sense as we look forward, particularly given, uh, as uh, one of the panelists pointed out, the increasing need for domestic workers. Domestic workers are almost 100% women. Um, and, uh, and as that need increases and that migration pact pattern increases, the, the nature of the work, the nature of what's happening is going to be, uh, has, is, is, is different. And, and that, that has to be recognized in, in any temporary worker program. Over here. There's somebody behind you. Uh, this is a question for uh, Professor Squeakantia. Um, many European countries are dealing with immigration issues and immigration problems. Um, what, how do our laws fundamentally, in what ways are they fundamentally similar or different from 
those in the UK or France or Sweden or whatever, and what can we learn from them, if anything? You know, I might actually defer to one of the other panels here because I'm not an expert on uh, European uh, migration at all. Uh, okay, I can deal with the European side better. In fact, uh, because I work on that. Um, generally speaking, European countries do not have a, a sort of a legal immigration program of any kind except, except for the admission of refugees because they all subscribe, they, they've all signed the uh, refugee, the international refugee protocol. So if you can show that you're a refugee, you can get into France or Britain or Germany or the Netherlands or Sweden. But uh, they don't have uh, even the kinds of limited quotas that we have, where you can just apply to join family. Most of them just don't have anything like that at all. Although some of them do have temporary worker programs. And in fact, they're now turning to them increasingly because uh, there's a reassure, even more of a short, there's a tremendous dem demographic problem in Europe. Namely, they, they're not making kids. And so <laughs> the population is aging since they're, they're more of a welfare state than we are. The pension plans really are, are in bad shape. So they really, they, they see immigration of workers as a solution for that. And so they're trying to figure out how to develop temporary worker programs also. I think that the, that is, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, and this is a question on, on whether guest workers, I admittedly that temporary workers programs have had a bad record. The old Bracero program in the United States was tied to an employer and it gave rise to all kinds of exploitation. So you want to clarify that that's not part of the proposal. That is once you enter into the border, that is, and because there is so much demand in, the, in this country for that sort of labor, I don't think that that would create a problem. Now, what happened, the thing that I wanted to point in Europe is that Europe had a big temporary guest workers program when they ran out of labor back in the 60s, was it? And uh, it, today, is the, the, that program is roundly denounced as a failure. But the fact is that when it was operating, it worked pretty well. That is, a, that is, there was a, a, a cyclical flow coming from Turkey and, and other countries and so on. The, 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 the program started becoming a failure when it was ended suddenly. And uh, it was, that is, it was completely caught in the 70s. And when it was caught, something very similar to what is happening with the mil militarization of the border happened. Namely, the Turks did not go back. The Algerians did not go back. Instead, they brought in their families and they it constituted a permanent immigrant population when before there had been uh, a cyclical labor flow. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank the uh, uh, people here for inviting some continuing study students, and I'm one of them. Uh, maybe my age gives that away. I'm, uh, I'm also an immigrant, uh, documented, uh, <laughs> that serves me right, and uh, I would like to ask the panel, and not anybody in particular, but I see this wall that's been proposed as somewhat to make the United States look democratic in its approach to immigration, as in maybe we need that because that way we can spread the immigrants among all the countries in the world, as in 
one person has equal rights no matter where he is on the globe if he wished to come here. And currently, of course, we don't have that. And I, I'd like to find out maybe from, from uh, the old scholar on the other side of the table what he thinks of this, like open it up for everybody if we open the border. Well, I mean, I think ethically, my, my, ba my basic stance is that uh, nobody has the right to keep anybody out in a kind of a f absolute sense, but everybody will keep others out. So uh, I think that the U.S. actually does admit people from a variety of countries, even with the kinds of cap that you mentioned. Nevertheless, it is possible. Uh, for, so, for people, let's say, from Chad to apply to come to the U.S. Do you have any questions from students uh, in the back? Or, oh, you have one over there? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, just to bring the discussion back to the worker program, sorry about that. Um, so it's my understanding that the Bracero program had a lot of shortcomings, not only on the fronts of the employers, but as well as the Mexican, Mexican government as far as issuing payment to employees that return back to Mexico. How much dialogue has there been between the United States and the Mexican government in order to create potential incentives for, for immigrants to return to Mexico after uh, their permit expires? I think that the Mexican government had gotten better. Not, not that good, but the quality of the Mexican state uh, is, uh, is had improved significantly uh, during, uh, from the time of that in which that happened. Which that is, the, the old corporate is highly, there, that's not to deny that there is still a, a lot of corruption and inefficiency, but uh, because in part uh, of the integration into the North American Free Trade Agreement, because of the demands of the global economy, we see an inc increasing islands of excellence within the Mexican bureaucracy. That is areas that are not corrupt, that are relatively efficient. One of them is the Institute for Mexicans Abroad, the IME, under the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Spanish acronym, run out, out of the Secretariat of Foreign Relations, trying, that this is the agency designated to maintain contacts with a huge diaspora, the expatriate community here. It runs pretty well on, on very competent, competent basis, uh, very efficiently contacting these communities and having representatives of uh, Mexicans in the United States elected to be, to be part of the consultative council of that, uh, of that group. And clearly since, the since Salinas, but especially since the arrival of Fox, there is a very important commitment, a very important realization on the part of the Mexican government about the importance of the, about the significance of the expatriate community, economic and political, and about the need to, um, to uh, legalize the situation, that is to, uh, to avoid this, this pattern in which the labor needs of the American economy are actually fulfilled on the ground, and that is uh, on the side when in fact it, they, they are very obvious and they should be, uh, they should be brought up. So in that context, uh, one can expect a significant degree of quid pro quo. Let's say if the, if the American government would decide to implement 
a kind, uh, some kind of temporary labor program, which is what the Mexican government is asking for. It has the right to then turn to the Mexican government and ask for a, cert for a number of conditions, that, it, that, 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 uh, that there would be incentives for families to remain, that there would be possi possibilities for uh, immigrants to invest and so on. And to give you an idea that this is not that this is not exclusively imaginary, that is sort of imaginary desires. There are already precedents of that. Today, there is a rather well-run program by this um, by this institute and the Mexican government called the Three for One, in which every dollar that is contributed by a Mexican immigrant community, a Mexican immigrant group, usually hometown committee, for philanthropic or public works back in their hometown or their region is triple by one dollar from the Mexican government, one from the state, and one from the municipality. Three, the three for one had been operated for the last 10 years, and it, it has already built hundreds of works of public infrastructure in Mexico. And if they can run that program on that basis, I think that that sets a reasonable precedent to think that, that they would respond to this kind of quid pro quo. We have time for uh, at least one more. Go ahead. Are we going to go over since we started late? Yeah, we can take that Okay. I have a question for Professor Zolberg. I know you talked a little bit, I believe you mentioned something about a test, an English test for immigrants. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Well, I was just suggesting that it's likely that any sort of legalization program is going to have some conditions attached to it. One of them might well be uh, a demand that uh, applicants uh, show that they can know some knowledge of English, which has been the traditional thing for naturalization. And uh, so I think it wouldn't be uh, completely out of line with sort of past American traditions. And the problem there is that uh, people want to learn English. In fact, what I didn't talk about is, for example, Univision, which is this, this huge uh, uh, Spanish language television uh, enterprise, is now beginning to develop programs in English for the third generation who want things with a Latino flavor, but they want them in English because they don't know enough, they don't want Spanish programs. <coughs> so that confirms uh, what, what you were saying, what Jennifer was saying about the fact that obviously people are learning English and want to learn English. We also know that there's a shortage wherever there are classes, English classes for adults, for example, there's a tremendous demand in, people really want to get into them. There aren't enough of them around. It used to be, uh, I mean, it used to be in the old days, in the 1920s and 30s, every school in New York City had evening classes for immigrants. And they don't have that anymore. It's not clear why they're not funded. Some people blame it on teachers' unions. I don't know if it's teachers' unions. Uh, but... Uh, Schools just don't do this kind of work anymore. There's one more. Did we want to get one more? Um, I wanted to go back to one thing that Alejandro Cortes said um, about uh, you were mentioning the um, some of the socioeconomic and crime-related uh, consequences for the um, 
the continued illegal um, status of this growing population. And um, I was wondering uh, how you might comment on the the uh, economically motivated uh, criminal justice and uh, cheap labor systems that are definitely uh, benefiting from a sort of disjointed and disadvantaged immigrant community and how 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 these ideas of implementing new laws might address that or combat that? Well, uh, that's, that's a complex question, and I think that it has several, several aspects. One, clearly, from the point of view of employers of cheap labor, including many growers, uh, there is no building interest to bring that flow above ground. That is, if, it, if the, the, best, the best position for many subcontractors and growers is the existing situation. Mm -hmm. so insofar as the existing situation create, does create a labor flow that self-transports, that assumes all the costs of the journey, including the payment of the smugglers, that is present at the factory's door, that is abundant and that is docile because of the situation of vulnerability. So the only way that employers and chambers of commerce are going to turn around to support a legalization program or a temporary workers program is vis-a-vis -vis the prospect of losing entirely that labor flow. That's what would happen. They would compromise to that extent that is, if you give us access to this labor, we'll go around to if it is flexible and abundant. Otherwise, there would be no particular incentive. And in fact, Today, that is what happens today, and I think I have repeated that several times, is that the benefits of immigrant labor, which are considerable, that is a, a good chunk of the economy runs on that, agriculture, construction, so on, are privatized. Are privatized. The costs, which are social, are socialized. That is, the costs come in the form of the exploitation of the first generation and especially of the conditions under which the second. Uh, it has to grow up. The, the employers assume no responsibility for that situation. That is, whatever happens to this population, the society has to assume responsibility then for this population that is often very much at risk of what we call downward assimilation. Into the gang, the drug culture, the prisons, premature uh, childbearing, and so on. That's, at, there is a two, that is, I would dream of a two-pronged strategy to, do, to deal with that. First, bring the legal immigration above ground, so to avoid the, avoid the worst exploitations, allow many of these workers to keep their families at home, not necessarily bring them, and second, tied with that, and I could, did not have time to add it, you need a series of special policies to target that handicapped population that is already here and not, is not going to go. That second, that is children of undocumented immigrants that are probably the most at risk uh, sector today of, uh, of the population 18, 18 years and younger. Can we get one last question here? Actually, could I just add a little bit to what he, um, what Alejandro said about the children of undocumented immigrants? It's interesting because um, our survey data shows how much better they do in terms of completing high school and completing college and their annual earnings if their fathers are able to change their status from undocumented to legalized resident and even better if the father becomes a U.S. citizen you actually see increases 
fair. So I full, fully agree with Alejandro when he says that the children whose fathers um, or mothers come as undocumented immigrants are really at risk. And we're actually doing um, a collaborator and I, Min Zhou, who's at UCLA, are doing some interviews of this population. And what's fascinating is that simple things that um, most American teenagers take for granted, like getting a driver's license or getting a cell phone, um, these children aren't able to do. And so they're unable to drive to, they're unable to drive and to work, or every time they drive to school, they're worried about being pulled over. They can't get a cell phone because you need a license to get a cell phone. So what you see are these kinds of obstacles that um, become cumulative and become um, possibilities for this downward assimilation. But what we clearly show is that when the fathers are able to legalize, their opportunities um, become much greater. So many social issues show this kind of disconnect that, that we talked about tonight, Alejandro. I just, this one though is so severe. Over the four sessions of this course, I think, I think we've just been shocked at every session, the disconnect between what seemed to be the, the, the facts and, and what people believe. And I don't mean just people out there who aren't in the university or in these elite settings, but people in, even in these elite settings, except for those fortunate of like us to be part of one of these courses or take courses from some from some of you, but that it's 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 astonishing how at odds the the everyday discourse is with with what's going on. And so, what's the how can we um, do something about this disconnect? What will what will have to happen? I won't ask why. I can. That's a long and complicated problem for why the disconnect is there. But what will we do in the next year or two to um, change that? Well, I think that the, that is it's a very difficult thing to overcome. I think that the the, native, the public at large, that is the population, have, and this is not only an American situation. I think that most of, uh, I think that I will agree with you that most native-born <laughs> population of countries receiving immigrations tend to be at least a, a diffusely hostile to newcomers. That happens here and it also happens throughout Europe. They don't, just don't like immigrants. And no matter how much you can sort of go blue in the face saying that of the contributions that they have made and so on, the, generals, the general position, the diffuse position is, to, is being relatively hostile. The only ones that defend immigrants in radio talk shows are the employers. They, that is, they come and say, I cannot get any native workers even for $15 an hour to do this job, and they come out. But everyone else, there are too many of them. You cannot, you, that is, you, you, they are always talking in languages that we don't understand. It's almost a sport, and that is not going to, that, that is not going to change. In itself, that which had been a constant of every high period of migration that is not going to change is not going it's the, it's the facts of life. It's going, that is how the process of adaptation works itself. And ironically, Hazel, one of the interesting things is that the very same groups that were derided and attacked and discriminated today in 20 years are celebrated by, uh, by their child, by the second generation or by others as, as model groups. So today the Italians are models and imagine how, what, 
what people would think what well, the Italians were dealt with back at the beginning of the 19th century. So in two generations, the whole thing changes. The, this is not going to affect things uh, eh, enormously if provided that the, that the people who made political hay out of this, the, 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 the politicians and the radio talk shows and so on, do not whip sentiment as they were close to do that to create real crisis. I mean, the fence, the, the passage of the fence is a real crisis of xenophobia. That, and that, that is due to these guys, these people, the Ludovs of this world, the Sensenbrenners that are whipping public, uh, public agitation, this diffuse sentiment. And that, that those situations become pretty serious. They have happened in the past. Generally, that diffuse sentiment remains, but the realities of the, of the economy, that is the fact that this labor is needed and so on, tend to prevail. And hopefully, that is the, the, there will be some kind of the, the reasonable solution, which is to legalize the, the movement, allow it to come and return and so on, would, uh, would prevail. It has not happened in the past because of the presence in Congress of, uh, of, uh, of these forces. It's not, as Ari Solver pointed out, it's not the entire right. The right is very much divided into an economic right that, on, that realizes the need for this labor and this fringe right that, that likes to whip up that, those sentiments in the, in the public. Okay. Can I just add, I, I want to try to end on a slightly more positive note because I know there are a lot of The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.